we're of course we're talking about hand hygiene we're going to identify transmission based precautions um, we've added some new ones outside of the standard ones that you see on CDC. We have Contact Plus Droplet, um, Contact Plus Airborne. Those you'll see a lot, especially the Contact Plus Airborne that own maybe 6J, our COVID unit, and then possibly on 4K where we have our, our negative pressure rooms and ED as well. Um, we're going to talk about some national patient safety goals and low-level cleaning products that affect, um, that impact are cleaning around here. Even if you do hand hygiene and you're working with dirty equipment, are we really doing anything? Absolutely not. What I will tell you, and we'll talk more about this later, when you're talking about low-level cleaning products, not all products are created the same. We should all, everything has a different contact or wet time. And I will tell you that if even if you're buying products for your home, I know when this COVID pandemic first started, a lot of people went out and they were Lysol crazy. Well, Lysol had a long contact or wet time, I should say. If you have to have something remain wet for 10 minutes, that is a long time. You'll use half the bottle of the product trying to actually get rid of something. So there's that misconception. I would tell everybody that when you're out and about, I, oh, here's one. Um, every cleaning product should have an EPA number on it, on the back of the bottle. Somewhere above the ingredients, you should see an EPA or EPA registration number. You can go to the epa.gov, put that number in. It'll tell you everything for the kill claims that it has, say COVID-19. Um, if it has a COVID, coronavirus is different from COVID-19. Coronavirus is a regular common cold virus. So it has coronavirus, but it doesn't say COVID-19 kill claim. It doesn't kill COVID-19. So do yourself a favor when you're out and about things for your home. Just take that extra time. If you're not familiar with the new product, you can actually put that number in and it'll tell you everything that it's listed to kill. Any questions about that? That's just helpful information. And that's actually how we review products to use at the facility. Like I said, not everything is created equal. Um, Clorox wipes. Not all of them have bleach. And it actually says it. Little fine writing does not contain bleach. They're quads. So there's a difference, and a lot of people have the misconception. We added a lot of new products during COVID-19, and when you see Clorox, a lot of people go, oh, we can use this for seeded. Not necessarily. If it says does not contain bleach, that's not effective for anything that's, that contains spores. Um, we're going to talk about some um, opportunities for cross-contamination. There are a lot. I'm sure sitting here you can give me examples. But I have some fun ones to share with you. We're going to discuss cardiac classy prevention and Legionella surveillance. Anybody familiar with Legionella? Okay, good. Now, oh, this is different. You we have nobody for me. Okay, so that's a good one. Um, hand hygiene, the most important aspect of infection prevention. Everything starts with prevention for us. So your five moments. Before patient contact, before aseptic task, after bite exposure, after contact with the patient, and after contact with the patient surrounding. Now, after contact with the patient surrounding, that's a big one for us. A lot of times people feel, well, I didn't touch the patient. I only went in to fluff the pillow or give them the call light. What's significant about the environment? There's microorganisms all over exactly whatever that patient has that's going to be in that environment so if they have vre you best believe things that are in close proximity things that they touch often the call light the side rails the doorknobs the faucets in the sink 
those things are going to have a higher bowel burden of whatever they have. And there was actually a research study that I read a few years ago where you had people that made direct contact with the patient, and then you had people that only touched the environmental surroundings. None of these people had VRE at the start. And we, they were looking at hand hygiene and transmission. <coughs> so you had this control group that actually contact, made contact with the patient, then you had those that contact the environment, but they didn't touch the patient. Do you think there's any difference in the rate that they acquired VRE? There was no difference, no difference. So that emphasizes the importance of after you touch the environmental surroundings, you also need to do hand hygiene. And I've seen better compliance now since it took a pandemic actually. And it's sad to say, to make everyone take note of the importance of hand hygiene and PPE, nonetheless, we are happy to see it. You know, it was a time where getting people to wear just the minimum PPE. It was a struggle. But then when COVID came, I saw people wear bonnets, they had shoe covers on. I mean, they broke out everything that I didn't even know we had. You know, so it definitely added, made an impact for us. Some clinical indications for hand hygiene. I'm not going to go over all of these. This is pretty much self-explanatory. Know that, of course, if you go to the bathroom, you need to wash your hands with soap and water. If your hands are visibly soiled, you don't need to be doing this, dusting them off, <laughs> then using sanitizer. You need to use soap and water. If you're taking care of somebody with any type of spore-forming organism, whether it be anthrax, cedipizole, anything that makes spores, you need to use soap and water. I always take it a little step further. If you're taking care of somebody with diarrhea, loose stool, use soap and water. For one, with our norovirus, we send it out. By the time we get it back, it's several days has passed. So we want to make sure that we're using soap and water. We don't want to wait for the results to come back for C. diff and say, well, now i got to switch it. No. If you're taking care of somebody with diarrhea, go ahead and use soap and water. Any questions about that? And when you're washing your hands with soap and water, what's the minimum time? Well, everybody says something different, 30, don't they? What's the, the standard? I hear it says 10. Who? 10. 30 seconds. Well, under. 30 seconds, you're over. And you're under. You need to meet in the middle. 20. 20 seconds. Yes. And that's often, that's a question that we all should be familiar with. But I can tell you some of the answers I get on the floor. You know, five minutes, three minutes. Stand at the sink and wash your hands for five. Just time yourself. See how long it is. By the time you pass a minute, you say, you know what, I better rethink this five minute thing. Sing your ABCs as well. Hmm? Sing your ABCs. And or sing happy birthday twice, yeah. you know. You want It's always better to do more than less, but you do need to understand the minimum time. That's a question that you'll be asked. Of course, we're in every type of survey. Because of the pandemic, we haven't been surveyed. We're in our long-term care survey. For those that are going to long-term care, We, I mean, we're past our window. Um, so we're in long-term care, joint commission, and we'll be having OIG soon thereafter as well. So... We're in every survey period, and that's a question that's commonly asked. Also, we'll talk more about it, but your wet times, contact times, be familiar. We don't expect you to remember every single one of them, but do know that, um, say, whatever wipe that's primary use in your area generally is Oxivir. You should know that it's a one-minute contact time. For patient education, we have to educate them. Everybody's definition of good hygiene or hygiene is different. It's subjective. 
you know, and I often tell people, don't judge me, when my daughters were little, you know, when we talk about clean, for me, if all of their toys were in the family room versus my living room, my house was clean. You know, whether they were all over the floor in the family room or not, I was doing pretty good for myself. It wasn't a trail leading through the house where you can tell where your kids have been. You can find them by their toys. So everything is, is, is a little different for everybody else. Um, so we have to educate them, especially in our community living centers. Those that are going to be going, the dumb finally opens. That is a, it's like a, a it's like a community setting where they they have refrigerators and they're sharing with other people. You know, it's it's just not good manners to to bite off something and put it back in the refrigerator. You know, take it to your room and things like that. So we have to educate them on that, especially when you're in a setting where you're sharing with multiple people. It's just not your own. You can't just open up a spigot of milk and drink out of it and put it back in there. So those are things that we have to reinforce, especially hand hygiene. Before touching the eyes, nose, or mouth, um, before and after changing wound dresses or bandages for those that are going to the community living center, my little residents, I love them, but do believe if they have had a really bad wound and it has healed, they are proud of it. They have before and after pictures, and they will love to show it to anybody that has time. So I have to educate them all the time because as soon as I walk in, first, hey, let me show you what it looks like today. They'll just go ahead and take it off. So we have to reinforce that education. And those that, that aren't able to do it themselves, we have to assist them. And one thing I will say, um, we have, I want they used to be Purell, but since COVID started everything, the brands that we have have changed. But they should have those hand hygiene wipes that come on their tray. A lot of times they'll just put it to the side. They don't know what they're for. So you have to educate them and tell them, oh, you know, this is to help you clean your hands before you eat. And if you tell them what they're for, they're most likely to do it. But if they just see it on their tray, they're going to put it to the side and not use them. So standard precautions. What does standard precaution mean to you? Very minimal. Okay, at least the, the very minimum that you should do, like the standards you should live by on a daily basis. Absolutely. The standard that you treat everybody. You, whatever you're most afraid of, you treat everybody as if they have it even your peers. You know, that's one of the things with this COVID transmission. We have a lot of asymptomatic transmission. Nobody comes to work to attempt to, to spread things, but they don't know they're asymptomatic. And then you have people that are sitting together eating lunch when we should be social distancing. And I get it. You know, we're social beings. Nobody wants to eat lunch by themselves. But it's during this pandemic, you know, we've had to change some things. You have to go sit down in your car and eat. That's what you have to do. So, standard precautions, you treat everybody as if they have something that you're most afraid of. Plain and simple, that includes hand hygiene, respiratory etiquette, the cleaning of equipment, um, and PPE. Now, personal protective equipment starts with personal for a reason. It is there to protect you. One of the things about the COVID, everyone, again, we had never had, a, had an issue with PPE, but then we were running out of gowns faster and faster because people started to understand the importance of wearing PPE. So it still is always starting with personal. It's there for your protection. Don't look at it as a hassle, you know? You know, I always tell people standard precautions is what we treat everybody like the bare minimum. Transmission precautions is the known. We know this person has something transmissible by contact, airborne, you know, or both. We know this. What about the unknown? What are you most afraid of? What you know or what you don't know? 
I'm afraid of what I don't know. Right. I see the sign posted, airborne. Got it. You know, got it. I know. But what about that asymptomatic person that was negative on admission? They've been having a cough. Even though it's not required for you to wear goggles on certain units, eye protection on certain units, that's not the standard for all units. You think to yourself, well, I don't have to. I'm not. But you're in there doing their procedure that do with flashes, and then two, three days later, they're positive. Well, understand precautions. You get to choose how much PPE you use based on your anticipated risk. You get to choose. So if you have to go in there taking care of somebody, you look like a Power Ranger. There's no judgment here. By all means, do so. Transmission-based <laughs> precautions tells you this is the minimum you need. You need to wear this, this, and this. It listed out for you. Not saying that that's all you can wear, but before you go in this room, you need gown and gloves. That's the minimum. But transmission precautions is used in addition to standard precautions. So if you can't practice standard precautions, you can't possibly implement transmission precautions because they go together. They're hand in hand. Any questions about that? Okay. Your PPE, I'm not going to go over everything on here, I'm sure. We're all familiar. Any questions with that? Okay. So we have airborne droplet contact enhanced barrier for those that are going to the community living center. Enhanced barrier simply says this patient has something that could be potentially transmissible to other residents, but they're colonized. Something like MRSA, they had a wound that's now healed. Well, enhanced barrier precautions give the residents in long-term care units more freedom to move about the unit if you realize that that's their home. So we can't keep them in their room all day, every day while they're in their home. So as long as they're clean, they don't have a large draining wound, they're not incontinent, they're able to clean their hands, and they have on clean clothes, they can go to different group activities, well, we're not having them right now, but they can go to different activities in the COC like anyone else. But nursing, we practice, and all staff that are in the room, we practice contact precautions. Why? Because we're taking care of other residents. We're going to other residents' rooms. Now, we go in there, and we don't put PPU on, and our, our, our um, scrubs come in contact with their environmental surfaces, and we go and take it to somebody else, we're leaning over, we're touching, we're moving, then we can call, contribute to an outbreak on the unit. So we practice contact precautions. Um, per policy, the RN um, can initiate orders for isolation, pending consultation with infection prevention or the provider. This is also true for the LVN charge nurses in long-term care. Um, this tells you the PPE, the minimum requirement that you need for each of the transmission-based precautions. Notice enhanced barrier is the same as contact. It just gives the residents more freedom of movement. But nursing, we practice contact precautions for enhanced barrier as well. Um, this is one of our contact precaution signs. All of our signs are number one through five. Um, if you flip them over on the back, they'll tell you some little education, little helpful tips. You want to explain when we go in the room, say if the patient was admitted, three days later we get the culture results back, and then we have to put the sign up. Well, we don't want to go in there with those yellow gowns on and we haven't been wearing them. You want to do your patient education and let them know what they have so they have an understanding of that. You don't want to make anyone feel like we're, we're I think the definition one of the residents gave me was, I felt nasty, I felt dirty. Now they're all wearing this stuff. They can't come in here without it, and he doesn't know why. So we want to make sure that we explain so they have an understanding. And just let them know that we're trying to protect other residents in the facility, and this is not to single them out. Um, contact Plus, 
<laughs> this sign is used for all types of diarrheal illnesses. It's brown. That's the easiest way to remember it. I don't, I don't know when they did it, but that was a running joke. But <laughs> it's brown. Um, it's number one through five, but notice four and five are different than the other contact signs. This one says wash hands with soap and water upon exiting. You have to use soap and water when you're dealing with C. diff and clean medical equipment with bleach wipes. That's the difference. Do know when you're dealing with C. diff, I always use the example of being at the beach and your hands are where you have wet sand. So think about the wet sand as spores. If you took sanitizer and put it on top of wet sand, are we getting rid of the sand? What are we doing? Moving it around. We're moving it around, absolutely. <laughs> so we have to use the friction of the soap and water to remove the spores. Any questions about that? All right. This is our enhanced barrier um, precaution sign. In long-term care, we have to maintain a home-like environment. So everything you can't look, things that are in long-term care can't look too hostile. Like if anybody, has anybody been to long-term care units over there? They're really nice. They're really nice. They're different from any other long-term care, so they are really nice. Again, this sign tells you everything that you need to do before entering the room. Drop of precautions, same thing, one through five. You have to put on a mask before entry. Now we're, our standard throughout the facility is everyone has to have on a mask. So do not take your mask off um, outside of that room. Just keep it on, especially in your patient care. <coughs> it's, it's one thing if your mask gets soiled or saturated, then you do need to go and change it. But don't practice taking it off. We are using extended use masks. So if you get a mask for the day, keep it on unless it becomes contaminated or soiled, then definitely go and get you a new one. But it's more of a risk for you to go in the rooms and take it off in the patient care and then put it on. That's more of a risk to you. Any questions about that? Airborne precautions. Anybody else going to acute care? Your critical care, ED. You're, you're going to? The ED. Okay, okay. So, airborne precautions. We know we need an N95 or PAPR, uh, N95 or higher rather. Fit testing is required annually for the disposable N95, um, you should, safety keeps a list. Not everybody will be fit tested. Those that are going to the ED definitely will be fit tested. Those that are going to 6J for sure will be fit tested. Um, not everybody in long-term care is fit tested. Um, if we have somebody that requires airborne, they're transferred to the hospital. We mask the patient and they're transferred and we wear a mask with all contacts until they're transferred. Um, not even all other acute care units, not everybody on those units are fit tested either. It's a selection based on your risk. Of course, everybody that's going to the unit with all the negative pressure rooms, 4K, yes. 6J, yes. ED, yes. And then for those that are going to the clinic, same thing. Not everybody will be fit tested. You have certain teams that have been fit tested with N95s. Um, any questions about that? And again, if you have a patient that requires transport, and say if they're in the long-term care unit, we don't have negative pressure rooms. We mask the patient with just a regular surgical mask. They don't wear N95. And we also wear masks for every patient contact. Same thing that applies to the clinics. You will put them in a room, close the door, until they can be transferred to a negative pressure room. But do protect yourself with a mask and do have the patient wear a mask. Any questions about that? I was fitted for a mask at my last employer, 
and it was the one that kind of looks like a duck bill. Mm -hmm. But do I still need to be fitted? Yes. Yeah. You'll be fit tested here too. And when someone's on airborne precautions, we limit um, movement to essential purposes only. A lot of times that's hard for the patients to understand. Um, and I know as nurses, we advocate for our patients. It just, it comes natural. We're advocates for our patients. But sometimes if you have a patient on rule out, um, on airborne precautions for rule out TB, we treat all rule outs as if it's so until it's actually ruled out. We can't allow them to move about freely in the facility, go down, pick up lunch, or go shopping in the canteen. But what we can do is ask, is there anything that we can do for them? You know, is there anything that I can get for you if they're looking for snacks? You know, we can do things like that, but we cannot allow them to move freely around the facility. Because what would happen if we have somebody that's on rule out, airborne for rule out TV, and they come back positive, and we've now, we've allowed them to rule, um, run around the facility, what happens? Spread. Absolutely. It's going to spread, and there's no way we can contact and trace all the movements that we didn't see. We can't do it. Droplet and contact precautions. This is used for um, observation status in the COC and in the long-term care unit and also for um, COVID positive patients that they're not having aerosolizing procedures done. So there's a difference. In the COC, they're required before they come, they have to have a negative COVID test. We generally ask that they stay on the acute care side of the house for 20 days. They need to meet that minimum at least 14 days before they, because COVID, what, what COC says now is it's two to 14 days that they can get it. You know, say if they've been exposed, they have between two and 14 days for it to actually test positive. So they can even initially test negative, but then later the following week, and we have seen many of this, yeah. they will test positive. So we keep them on precautions until they've actually met that time period. That's just an extra net of safety for us. Any questions about that? No, that's what I was going to mention when you were saying about passing it, mm -hmm. that um, like doing the, the bare minimum and all that. Yes. You could have, uh, there was a unit from where I came from where a guy tested negative and then went to like the regular floor as opposed to the COVID floor. They weren't obviously practicing the higher level of protection, and then all the staff got COVID, Absolutely. and then that floor was shut down. Mm -hmm. And I tell you, outbreaks of that magnitude are hard. They're not only hard on our veterans, they're hard on staffing, too. We've had outbreaks. Um, we had one, our first outbreak was on the Waco 91, the long-term care unit. Mm -hmm. And my goodness, and we were doing everything that right for the most part you know we the residents had limited movement they weren't leaving the facility unless they went to an appointment if they went to an appointment that sign when they came back that sign went up for 14 days and then they were tested before we took it off but what happened is you know we had a positive staff or employee come into the facility they were asymptomatic of course and they didn't know and so but later became symptomatic and by that time that person had said one-to-one with multiple different residents during that infection window period, and then it takes off like wildfire. Then that person ate lunch with these people. They're positive. This person took care of somebody on this unit, and so it became this massive 
almost like you couldn't even do like the tree branches anymore. It was like weeds that just, <laughs> you just, in the office, we were just plotting. It just, it just all merged together. So they're definitely hard. They're hard and we try our best. You know, and we tell people, if you're sick, stay home. If you know you've been exposed, notify your supervisor. But what we don't want is outbreaks like that of that magnitude because it's hard when it takes out, and that one outbreak takes out your entire staff for that unit. And then you, we, we did have to close that unit down and then pull staff to to other units. But then when those staff who was, was incubating, I would say, went to that unit, and then now you start seeing positive cases there, and so it was it was awful and it took a while to get it back together. But that was a lesson learned. That was definitely one of those lesson learns that we didn't want to learn again. <laughs> um, airborne and contact precaution. You should only see this sign on 4K, ED, and 6J. We have 6J is our COVID unit and they do well. To my knowledge, they haven't had not, no transmissions of staff on that unit. Knock on wood. They have an extensive process that I won't go over here with you guys. You'll get that other orientation for your PPE process on 6J. You'll get that on 6J. It's quite extensive. They have different zones. They have a green, a red, and a yellow zone. So different rules apply to different zones. But it is quite nice. And I will say for our COVID unit, our engineering, the entire facility got that unit up and running in little to no time. And that tells you the power in that. It used to be um, our long-term care unit several years ago. Then they took it out. They put those buildings over there. And then that unit became more clinic area, offices. So they were able to make that entire unit negative pressure. The entire unit is negative pressure. And they also put up 6J. 6J was supposed to be the overflow um, COVID unit. We decommissioned 6J yesterday. 6J ended up being COC COVID unit because when we had outbreaks and a long-term care outbreaks from Waco in the COC, it impacted 6J significantly, meaning their workload tripled because we were we can't keep them in the COC. We don't have negative pressure rooms. So we transferred all those patients to 6J and then 6J had no more rooms available. We, we actually ended up housing a residence in the ED until we can get a vacant room. So we had to open up 6J, 6K to help with the staffing and take the burden off of um, 6J. How do they handle like for patients? Like in that example, this guy came in for like COPD exacerbation. Mm -hmm. He didn't come in for any, I mean, I, well, I don't really know what he came in for. He came in for something that was non-COVID related and had, and then tested COVID negative. So what, what do you, what do you, is the, was he symptomatic? He had respiratory? He was not symptomatic. So obviously it wasn't respiratory. I'm, I don't really know what he came in for. If it was non-respiratory, but they, they were testing everyone who came but in. But he said COPD is aggravation, so he wasn't having no. No, I'm just saying, I said that. Oh, okay, I don't okay. Really know. okay. I just okay. know that he came in for something else. And then, you know, so what, what, my question is, what are we doing to like, for those who come in for something completely non-COVID related, but test negative, but still may be in that two to 14 day window. Yeah, is we, there a unit for that? That's a good, we have, we, that's a great point. We actually, yeah. I was in favor of something like that. I was actually, cause we, we do that in long-term care. I was in favor of the Q care setting doing that, but because of the PPE requirements, there was pushback, they didn't want to do that. Uh -huh. um, so, you, but our policy is if someone is symptomatic, say they're coughing, you know, we don't care if you got allergies, 
you know, we go ahead and put the contact plus droplet sign up. That's that's one of the things that we were able to negotiate on. They put the if they cough, you know, you only got so many. You go that sign goes yeah. up, and then they're tested. So, but I do get yeah, it. That's, and that's, I mean, that's something that's that, why he was like, and we have had he that. Got, he got missed. You know what I mean? Because we he had was that something. Yeah, literally, maybe two weeks ago. Wow. Where, uh, but luckily, I mean, well, not luckily, Jesus. I know what that patient started displaying signs and symptoms and so was tested again but he had been on a regular floor but the nurses i say kudos to them but because as soon as the signs and symptoms started that sign went up and they were wearing eye protection and mask and to my knowledge there has been no transmission from that encounter so kudos to the nursing staff they did really well um but i wish we could do something like that but it's I guess it's just not feasible on the acute care floor, so it's, but it's just like being out at the grocery store or anywhere else, you know, you don't know, if, and even before COVID, I would tell people, you know, when we have somebody that's ruled out TB, everyone used to freak out, but do you know who you come in contact with at the grocery store, and this is before we were wearing masks, do you know, you know, there are different levels, different exposure levels, how long, what procedures, you know, was it aerosol generated? So there's a lot of things to take into consideration when you're looking at potential exposures, but that's a great question. Um, donning and doffing PPE, we'll talk more about this at the end, but do know that it's one thing to put your PPE on in the wrong order. It's a whole nother scenario to take it off, take it off <laughs> in the wrong order. What happens? I can see we're all on the same page. What happens? Absolutely. Everything that you were attempting to protect yourself from, you run the risk of self-inoculation, you know? And one of the things that, as an infection control nurse, when I see people in the grocery store, when I see with the gloves on, and I see them scratching, and I just... And on their phone. Yes, if you see them, you know, take the... And it just, everything in me, I had to take my card and go around, just, you know, because everything in me says, oh, this is all wrong. I know what you're trying to do, but you're making it worse, so... They're still in there testing, eating fruit. Hmm? I've still seen people test eating fruit. Oh, no. I was like, how? No, no. You have have people that have good intentions and they do things the wrong way. You know, I I share that with my kids and I'm the same way with hand hygiene at home. You know, my daughter, I told them, don't stare. Don't stare at people. It's rude, you know, but we were at the gas pump a few months ago and she was just staring. She just kept staring at her and I knocked, hey, stop doing that. And she was just staring. She just wanted she would look and she would look again. And she said, hey, he was just touching that. And then now he's eating. <laughs> and so even for an 11-year-old, she found that. Just, I, I don't understand. How does that happen? And she was just staring. So she understands the concept. Get off um, to a good start. Yes, yeah. <laughs> yes, you you have to, but I failed when she was two. I did because I would get those those little write ups from the, the daycare center, and it was I would teach her about using her her um her Kleenex to clean her nose. But what she would do was she would just say one was like her trash can, you know. She would just after she finished, she would put it in there and put it in there. They would send, hey, she's doing it again. So I would tell her, you know, throw them away. Well, one day I got one home and it was in big letters asking me to call. Well, what she was doing, even though she said, I told her she couldn't keep it, she said, well, 
one of the other little kids had a runny nose. But she finished using hers. <laughs> and she said, here you go. <laughs> she said, here you go. And so and he actually used it, and it caused quite the disturbance in the daycare with that, that um, child's parents. And so I had to apologize, but here I am trying to teach my child. And, you know, and at that age, it, it's hard for them. All she knows is I have to clean it. And, well, I don't know where to put it. So she just put it in her pockets and come on full every day of dirty used Kleenexes. And she felt like, you say I should share, so here you go. And so we, we've done a lot of work on it. Maybe did she inspire you to go into infection control? <laughs> you know, everything, everything I've had pink eye and never had it as a child i got it from my kids every wow. single thing you know kids are their hands touch. petri dishes yeah their their hands touch the ugh. yeah so yes 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 they are <laughs> they encourage you to do better because sometimes you just have to look and wonder why um disposal this is just a friendly reminder everything that can puncture or lacerate goes in the sharps container you don't want to be the person say our housekeeping they're doing their job they're going out removing trash, and then they incidentally get stuck with something that was put in the trash can, but it should have been put in a sharp container. That's one of the worst exposures you can have is the unknown source. Then they're put in a situation where they have to make a choice. You know, when they go to our health, do they take the meds? You know, that's a hard choice, and we don't want to put anybody in that situation. And this is why I emphasize, if anything that can puncture or lacerate, it goes in the sharp container. Because what we don't want to do is put anybody at increased risk while they're doing their job. You know, that's a sad case when you have to, to make a decision to take these antiviral meds based on the exposure you had. And we don't know who it was used on. I will also tell you that I'm not sure how much you guys pay for pens or anything else like this. If you drop your, your, your phone or pen in the trash can, don't go dump to diving with no gloves and come out with a wet sleeve and we've had that you know a wet sleeve so it got off the things and then don't save that sweater and put it in the bag and bring it to infection prevention because <laughs> we're not going to culture it that is your sweater you wash it take it home whatever you do that's your choice we'll definitely work up the potential exposure but we're not culturing your sweater this has happened to you, hasn't it? This has happened. <laughs> I don't want to know what's on your sweater sleeve. <laughs> because if I drop my pen in there, it stays. It's gone. Yeah. You know, if I drop the VA phone, you have to get gloves. You need to look. But don't go dumpster diving, you know, for your favorite pen. You know, you're going to come out with an uh-oh. And that's what happened. It was an uh-oh for everybody. You know, we were all shocked, too. Just as shocked as they were. Because I couldn't figure out why that sweater was brought to me. You know, <laughs> I didn't know, but this is just just real life examples. Only things that are heavily soiled or saturated with blood or other potential infection material should go in the biohazard waste container. That means that any PPE that you use, if you're just taking care of somebody that has a contact precaution sign, you have PPE. You don't need a biohazard container to throw away your PPE. That stuff is weighed. So you can just put that in a regular trash can. It's not soil saturated. Put it in a regular trash can. Uh, everything else goes in the trash. Multi-drug resistant organisms. Um, this is also a big part of my job. This is just bacteria that has developed resistance to the antibiotics that's normally used to treat them. Usually it's two or more. Um, this happens because of misuse and abuse of antibiotics. 
simply stated, you know, pre-COVID, every sneeze, every cough, <laughs> everyone wanted an antibody. Mm -hmm. Now when they sneeze or cough, you got to have a helmet on when you go out there to see, to see them. So it's, it's taking a different turn, you know. Then I think one of the nurses told me, she said, they only get three sneezes in here. Then I go through the N95. <laughs> <laughs> I take myself, well, just stand in precautions, you know. Do the best you need to do. Okay. Um, the problem with, um, with most resistant organisms, the antibody resistance, it makes treatment challenging. So... The more resistant it is, they have to go higher and higher and higher. And then that that's, that puts, paves the way for more multi-drug resistant organisms. So they're broken up to gram-positive and gram-negative. Of course, we have MRSA, VRE, your gram-positive, and then you have the gram-negatives. We hear a lot about the gram-positive. They're on the forefront of everything. But it's actually the gram-negatives that are harder to treat. It's actually these. But... MRSA, VRE, they get a lot of notice, but it's actually your gram negatives that are harder to treat. Um, Endoneurals are spread by direct contact, skin to skin, hands of healthcare workers, not just nursing, healthcare workers, providers included. Um, indirect contact, your stethoscopes, your reasonable medical equipment, things that we bring to the patients and don't clean them, or take from the patients and don't clean them when we go to another room. And they can live on environmental surfaces for days to months. So just because that patient is out of that room doesn't mean you can't culture anything off those surfaces. Um, Carbapenem-resistant Enterobacteriaceae, that is a mouthful. <laughs> but if you have to say that name, no. If you look at it, it just looks scary, don't it? Mm -hmm. That's a whole lot of letters. It's the resistant that gets me. Yes. So... Carbapenem. Anybody familiar with the carbapenem? Imipenem, meripenem, doripenem? Okay. Meripenem. Hmm? Uh-huh. 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 So the carbapenems are a class of drugs that's used as a last resort to treat gram negatives. Remember I told you your gram negatives are harder to treat infections. So carbapenems are used as a last resort. Last resort. So if they're resistant to what we use as a last resort, mm. it's a situation. We got a situation on our hand. So when you look at that big word, you just think it's a situation. <laughs> so these are nasty, nasty infections. That's why everything, strict contact um, isolation, hand hygiene, cleaning of RME, meaning, and I, I'll go, they don't share. If you had to make a choice between sharing equipment, who shares equipment, this person gets dedicated to everything. Whatever goes in their room stays until discharge. It should not come out. They absolutely should not share. I, I generally put them above the C diff. They don't share. For one, this is reportable to the health department. It has a high mortality rate. Really? Yes. It has a high mortality rate. And if you, we get a community acquired CR, we take care of them all the time. But it's another thing to have a healthcare acquired CRE case than the health department. They're really nice people in Bill County. I like them. But they're going to come and their visits aren't friendly. They're coming <laughs> and it's a situation. You know, that's it's a situation. When they come, it's a situation. They're not coming. You're getting rid of. You're getting rid of. To have no, it's a situation if they have to come from their office to here to investigate a CRE outbreak. That's the significance of this. is reportable. Um, generally, these people use combination antibiotic therapy. 
And I would encourage everyone when you get CPRS access, CPRS access, and you're taking care of somebody with CRE, look in their micro report. You will see R's all the way down. They may have one or two intermediates, and we treat them as a resistant because it may or may not work. And they may have one or two successfuls. That's why they have to have combination apps. But when you look at the micro report, it's a situation. It's scary. You look, oh my God. Now, everything that we have here, <laughs> they're resistant to. <laughs> and they're usually sick. They're usually really, really sick. So this is definitely something to think about. If you have a C, they give you a report, CRE, they don't share everything that stays. I wouldn't take my stethoscope in there. I would use disposable equipment whenever possible with them, but everything stays with them until they're discharged. Any questions about this? Remember, it was a long time ago. I want to say a hospital in California had an outbreak of CRE. They actually had to shut it down. Mm. It's what you have to do because when you have so many people dying from this, in order to get hold, they couldn't take admissions. Anybody that could discharge had to be discharged. They just had to public. They had to shut it down. Um, C. difficile. The name recently changed. I still can't pronounce it. Uh, don't judge me. It's still C. diff to me. Still got a C with a difficile at the end. It's still C. diff. Um, spore forming organism, we know it's not killed by alcohol. You have to use soap and water. Think about the sand that I use as an example for spores. Um, and like anything else, spores can be transferred via the hands of healthcare workers. What else do you think about when you think about spores and hands, the things that we have on the acute care unit? Fungus? Or care units? Fungus? Hmm? No, no, with C. What oh, other, okay. What other surface? What other surface? The bathroom. The bathroom. Oh, this, this, uh, Keyboards, yeah, mm -hmm. mouse. Absolutely. You know, look, several, several years ago, several years ago, yeah. the keyboards were implemented um, in a C. diff um, outbreak. They were the cause. Because what happens, you go in, if you don't do a hand hygiene with soap and water, you got a situation on your hands. And you come over here and you put the situation on the keyboard. If somebody else comes behind you, then they got a situation on their hands. Yeah, in the emergency department, they interchange computers by the hour. Yeah. So there's someone So you have to here, continuously here. wipe them down. Thank you for bringing up the computers. The computer on wheels, they are the nastiest thing in this facility. Because wherever you go, they go, and your hands are constantly doing this. Um, there was a research project done at this facility several years ago where they cultured every computer on wheels in use on one day. One day. If you saw the results, you wouldn't look at them like, mm-mm. <laughs> they were nasty. They gram-negative, gram-positive. And we wonder, as healthcare workers, you know, why we're colonized with a lot of things. Think about things like that. You know, we know at the beginning of our shift, we generally wipe them down. But throughout the day, not if we're being honest with ourselves. Probably not. Not unless you come into a real situation and you, you think, oh, I better clean this off. Other than that, you really don't wipe it down. You know, if you're giving handoff or giving report to one of your friends, maybe while you're talking and catching up, you're doing it. But other than that, no. They're not wiped down nearly as, as much as they should be. And so they are potential trans, um, sources of transmission as well. Um, if a veteran has diarrhea, what kind of precautions would you use? Contact or contact plus? Contact plus. Contact plus, absolutely. Only one specimen can be sent to the lab in a seven-day period, and it has to be liquid stool. 
So, lab will reject it if it's formed. So, if you got the scuba that put in the cup, don't even send it. We don't test for a cure here, meaning that if if they're no longer symptomatic, we call that that's okay for us. You know, they meet the discontinuation criteria. Actually, for acute care, there's no discontinuation criteria. If they, unless it's a, they have a prolonged hospital stay. Generally, our hospital stays are two to three days. So if they test positive for C. diff during that hospital stay, they stay on contact precautions the entire duration of stay. Now, long-term care is a little different, meaning that that's their home. We can't keep them on it forever. So as soon as they're asymptomatic, plus an additional 48 hours, we can start the discontinuation process, meaning that the room has to be terminally clean or the patient has to be transferred to a new clean room. But it has to be terminally clean. It's a multi-step process. If the veteran is in that bed and did not leave the room, the room was not terminally clean because the mattresses have to be flipped. The side rails is a top to bottom, and then we use the UV light. Multi-step process takes a while, and the veteran can't stay in the room. I had one veteran, a resident, he didn't want to move out his room, so we offered to do it um, on the day he went to dialysis. Well, he didn't want anybody touching his stuff. So he suggested, and he was quite smart, why don't you just use that little light that I see them putting at the edge of the doors? Well, that's still not a terminal clean, but you actually have to clean it first before you can go in with the UV light. So he had to stay on for until he was discharged. He was one of the exceptions for CLC. He stayed because he didn't want anyone to touch his stuff. He didn't want to move to a new room, so he chose to stay there. But we did have to educate him that, hey, you know, we do terminal cleans after you're no longer symptomatic for a reason because there are spores on environmental surfaces. But thank goodness for our EMS team. They were amazing. They wiped down as much as he would allow them to. Um, so if you're on the floor on a unit, if you have a patient that has three or more liquid stools within 24 hours, you want to let the provider know. Also look to see if they have laxatives. Mm. You know, we've had that happen quite a few times where you have people taking laxatives and then you come on your diligence and you say, oh my gosh, you know, he's having diarrhea, you get a stool sample, but what you didn't realize is that the person that was before you requested something to help them go. Um, we talked about this discontinuation criteria, okay? We talked about this a little earlier. You don't want to just go in with the, the yellow gowns on. You want to let them know why. Because it's scary for them. Just imagine yourself being in a situation where you don't know why all of a sudden people got to put on gowns. That's scary. You want to know, hey, what's going on? You know, do tell the patient and provide patient education. I like this little cartoon. You see people doing it. I see people dropping coffee, trying to use their elbows and COVID. It's actually pretty funny. Um, CPRS alerts, they're found in the top right-hand corner. You can um, click on all infection control alerts, they'll open up, and they'll tell you the code today, the cool. specimen type, and the organism. And any type of discontinuation criteria that's associated with that organism. I will tell you, outside of MRSA and CDF for long-term care units, everybody else are like, they lifers. You test positive for MDRO, outside of MRSA, Every time you come to acute care, you get placed back on contact precautions. The reason we do this is because CDC, there's no standardized criteria to say what they need to do to be discontinued. So we do more than less. And there are several facilities that do that because there's no standardized guidance. Um, MRSA admission there, how 
many people are going to acute care, ED, and long-term care, patient care units? Like you, you. Okay. After this, I'll pull you guys to the side and I'll go in depth. But do know that um, for all admissions to acute care and long-term care, they're required to do MRSA admission swaps. Um, the red, the PCR issues for patients without a history of MRSA within the last year. You'll get the results within two hours. The ED does acute care. The ED does all the admission, MRSA admission swaps for acute care. However, there's a caveat. If that ED nurse has missed the swab, whose responsibility is it? The yeah, nurse in acute care. Whoever's receiving that patient is actually your responsibility. Think of this as a courtesy from the ED. It's done for bed control. Because we what we did do at one point, the acute care nurses got them on admission, but then you know they turned positive, they were already in the room, somebody was negative, you had to move them. It was a headache for bed control. ED was nice enough to volunteer their services to do these, collect these in the ED. So by the time they're, they're admitted to the unit, they already have the results back and they can place them in the appropriate bed. Does that make sense? Mm -hmm. So the ED does these for all acute care, not long-term care. You're on your own over there in the CLC. You're on your own. We have to do our own swaps on admission. So the PCR, no history within the last year. ED does them when the patient's being admitted for acute care. CLC, you have to do this yourself. White agar is used for patients with a history of MRSA within the last year. Because they have a history, we don't need the results right then and there. We're going to go ahead and put them on isolation, pending them meeting discontinuation criteria. So you can get the white agar. They're going to go in isolation anyway if they have a history within the last year. And we usually get this result back within one to two days. If you're on the Waco campus, add two more days to it because it has to be sent to Temple. Any questions about this? This is done on admission for acute care, long-term care. We don't do discharges or transfers. However, when there's a change, anybody admitted to ICU, that's a change in level of care. So say if you have a patient that was on 2K and they require high level care, they go to ICU. ICU swaps everybody coming to them because they're critical care. So it's a change in level of care. Same thing for COC. Say if you had a patient that was admitted yesterday to the COC. Well, today he requires a high level of care, so we're transferring them back to acute care. Well, when acute care says, okay, acute care is going to swab them again, and then when he's discharged back to the COC, because we're changing level of cares, what happens? COC swab them again. Did I confuse anybody? All right. We ain't got no situations. We good. Will our departments have SOPs discussing this procedure and stuff like that? Yes. It'll, yeah. it'll be a decision tree. You'll have a decision tree. Definitely. Um, it should be posted somewhere on all the acute care units and in the ED. But the ED does pretty good about getting You guys are really good at getting <laughs> Yeah. Um, Swabbing must be done within 24 hours of admission. This includes our patients admitted for op status. Again, if the ED fails to get it, that is on that acute care nurse. I can't stress that enough because a lot of times when we send out a report, the nurses say, well, the ED should have. They should have. They missed it, but it's a unit responsibility. That's caused a few arguments. Hmm? So that's caused a few arguments. <laughs> yes, it has. <laughs> yeah. And sometimes we get called or emailed with those arguments. So I just can't stress it enough. It, you know, ED stepped up when we needed them the most. So, you know, we, we appreciate it, but it is a unit initiative, not an ED initiative. Okay, we talked about this. <laughs> 
Reusable medical equipment. Is anything designed by a manufacturer to be used on more than one patient? That's your stethoscopes, your biostar machine, anything like that that we can use on more than one patient. Um, opportunities for cross-contamination, there are many. Now, one thing that came up on a previous survey, a long-term care survey, I will say for those that have worked long-term care, and myself included, I love long-term care, those patients, they're there, that's their home, they become family. And so you treat them like family. You know, we're compassionate, we're good at what we do. Sometimes we tend to forget that they are our patients, our veterans. You know, so with that said, you cannot touch someone's bare hands, touch food with your bare hands, even if you're assisting them. So you can't <laughs> pick up somebody's roll, place it on your hand, and butter it, and smash it back down there for them. And give it to them. You can't do that. You know, I like to eat myself. I love Texas Roadhouse Rolls. But if my waitress ever came to my table and buttered my rolls with her, we have a situation. That's not cool. We don't want to do that. And I know the intent is good. But I work CLC and they said that you can't use gloves. You, there's a difference. There's a caveat. You can't use gloves for every interaction, but you cannot touch their, you can't make someone feel as if they're dirty. That's what I was telling you earlier. But there are situations where if you can't put your hand in their milk and pull that spigot out, mm -hmm. you, can't, you cannot make contact with their food with your bare hands. I don't care if you just did hand hygiene. So you can't feed them? You can feed them. You with can the feed gloves. You can, if you, if you have to make contact with their food, you can wear gloves. Now, I see what a lot of people do is they'll they'll grab the trays and you know and put gloves on. Some glove use is unnecessary use, but you cannot under no circumstance make contact with their food with bare hands. They, now, I don't like to touch it, but they I will write you up every time. I think that's something that's going on in the wake of CLC like confusion because we were told now I still did it. But, like, you can't use gloves while feeding. And if you're touching the utensil, if you're only touching the utensil, that's fine. With the food. But if you got to put ketchup mustard on their hamburger bun, and you, mm-mm. They were rolled up for that. Long-term care cited them multiple times. Mm -hmm. So that's probably why they have that fear and they wear gloves for everything now. But they were <laughs> cited on multiple occasions. So, you know, can you imagine? But just think about it. Just think about uh, you know, I like to eat, but yeah, something about, uh, yeah, I'll pass that. Yeah. No, I'll pass. Mm -mm, I don't want it. You know, if you even picked it up with your hand, and remember what I said at the beginning, everybody's definition of clean is what? It's relative. I, yeah, it's up to your interpretation, right. you know, based on how you were brought up, based on what you see, what you fear, that's how everybody implements things. So, but you shouldn't touch anyone's bare food. And that one, that's one of the examples. And Lord knows, I see what they're doing. They're trying to make sure they don't happen again because that was a big, that we had a situation. It was a, yeah, it was a real, yeah, it was a real problem. The stuff we do before as nurses and healthcare providers before we touch food is, is pretty mm -hmm. gross. Yeah, and if you can imagine, and, and it wasn't an intent, but they were, they were so used to doing everything for the veteran. They had no ill intent. But just you can't you can't do that. Even putting I think it was milk speak is it's not funny, buddy. You know, you can't you can't do that. You know we do that for our kids. You can't put your hand in nobody's milk speaking and pull it out and give it. 
you can't do that. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> oh my goodness. Um, <laughs> um, hand, love you. Hand hygiene in the same room. Say, and I, I know in Waco TLC, but Q care, they're double um, dead occupants, um, room occupants sometimes. So say if, if they're in the room, a shared room, and they have isolation, both of them, of course, are on isolation. So you do have to put on gown and gloves for each patient contact. What you cannot do is finish patient A and go to B. Okay. And go to absolutely not. <laughs> you know, you'll never win that argument. I don't care if they both have that sign. You just, it's just not right. You know, you can't do that. That's something that you just just imagine. Put yourself, and I always tell people, you have questions about things. Put yourself in that situation. As healthcare providers, we make the worst patients. We know we do. Because we look at everything. We look at every single thing. So we generally make the worst patients. Um, just imagine if you were in a room, sharing. you're in a, a situation in a hospital, and then your nurse came in and walked over, took care of this patient, and then came over with you the same gloves. <laughs> How would you feel? Would you say something? Absolutely. Yes, we would. Yes, we would. So we can't do that. Another thing. <laughs> if you are providing hygiene care, parent care, any type of care to somebody, and you complete it, you then can't go up and feed them <laughs> with them same gloves on. <laughs> you seen it. You had to see it. You can't do it. <laughs> Those are situations. You can't do it. There is no rhyme where you it's wrong. You can't do it. Wow. You can't go up and fluff their pillow with those gloves. Mm -hmm. You can't do it. You can't go from dirty to clean like that. Even if it's on the same patient without doing hand hygiene, remove those gloves, doing hand hygiene with some new gloves. Does that make sense? So sometimes you just have to step back and look and put yourself in that situation and think, would this be cool with somebody? No, probably not. I better not do it. Any questions? Where it's posted. Yeah, where is that posted? It should be posted everywhere on your unit. Oh, Several places. It should be definitely in the med room. Every unit posted different places. I know in long-term care, no ED, I think they have them in the med room, if I'm not mistaken. Maybe supply closet. They're posted various places. Long-term care have them. Oh my God, they, they're in the med room, they're on different boards, they're in the break room, they're everywhere. So different units, but they're posted throughout the units. Is they're, it on the share, oh, SharePoint? Or? Yes. Okay. Yes. No. Um, Low-level disinfecting products and minimum contact time, again, it didn't used to be this creative and messy looking. So because we had to add so many products for COVID, because we couldn't occupy our main wipes, believe it or not, it still has one minute contact time for COVID. And when people found that out, for a while, we couldn't get our normal supply of Oxivir. It's starting to get better now. But, you know, just imagine, not everything has a one-minute contact time, not even bleach for COVID. <laughs> so this was a hot commodity, and everyone else was out there buying Lysol. <laughs> so these are cleaning products. And remember what I said, like those Clorox Chris? This, these wipes contain bleach. Bleach German side wipes. This, this brand of Clorox. But those yellow top, the green, no, it says does not contain bleach on the front of it. So you can't use that for seeded. Okay. This is just a better picture. Now the red top, the Santa Claus Plus, does not have a COVID kill claim. You shouldn't see a lot of this in the facility anymore. 
they stop ordering it. But you do have some people that stash them a couple bottles. And <laughs> just, you know, just to make sure they have. But it doesn't have COVID-19 kill claim, so you shouldn't really be using it. The glucometers, they should be cleaned with a bleach wipe after every use. Why? Because you're using it on multiple patients. Multiple patients, and what are we dealing with? Blood. Blood, Blood absolutely. Absolutely. That would be the worst type of exposure to report, is that a potential exposure to another patient that was glucometer related. You know, So we have to be diligent. I know a lot of times people forget and you're in a hurry. But you can't just skip out on this process when it comes to the glucometer. You cannot mm -hmm. skip out on this process. Another thing, standard precautions applies to every, everything, everyone across the board. Think about what I said. What about the unknown? We had one incident, and it broke my heart because we do we are involved in exposures with our health. You know, our health has some primary role, but we do get involved to see what infection prevention gaps. You know, it's not staff. A point finger, you did this, 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 no, it's to improve processes. So there was a situation where you had a staff that was, had been nursing for quite some time, you know, at some point in your career, you remember when you practiced without gloves, you know, and I, I can assume that that was the, the whole notion where we did this without gloves, but, and then you had a patient that, there are no alerts, we don't post alerts for things that require standard precautions, your hepatitis, HIV, we can't post a, a, a flag, an infection control flag in their chart. It's in the chart. It's up to you to read it. But we cannot post like infection control alert HIV. No, that's standard precautions. You treat everybody. Not everybody's tested, so you don't know who has it and who don't. So what happened was we had a staff member that was doing finger sticks, not wearing gloves, mm -mm. and you had a, 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 a patient, a veteran that was HIV, had been HIV positive, that was getting finger sticks, had them several times a day. And so when that staff member had to report that exposure and it had been ongoing, ongoing, and there was a sense of frustration, hurt, and you can, you can imagine, you know, you never want to put yourself in a seat, but you can imagine, you can sympathize or empathize with them, what they're going through, you know, just, just knowing, hey, I put myself at risk. So don't do that. And if you see other employees, just give them a gentle reminder. Now, don't be the infection control police out there writing citations for people, giving tickets. You know, don't do that. Just give them a gentle reminder. Try not, try not to embarrass people when I find something, because you don't want people to do that to you. You don't want, hey, you know, yell across the room, and everybody, you don't want to make it like that. You want to approach them in a dignified way so they understand, you know, you don't, it's not coming off rude or condescending. If you talk to them how you want to be talked to and treated. If you don't want to be embarrassed, don't yell across there and say, look at you, what you doing? Don't do that. Just approach them in a kind, professional manner and let them know. Because some people don't know, you know, So, but we don't never want to make somebody feel isolated and embarrassed and ashamed. We don't want to do that. And even in fashion control, we don't do that. We, I can't write citations. So, <laughs> so we don't want to do that. We're going to go through this one really fast. Catheter-associated UTIs, they're nothing more than... UTIs that are associated with indwelling catheter use, period, point blank. If you don't have an indwelling catheter, you can get a UTI, but you can't get a catheter-associated UTI. They're most often associated with prolonged use. Um, failure to put them in using aseptic technique or stale equipment. Ms. Barbara and I did a workshop, and it was amazing. I love working with her. She's an amazing educator. We did it several years ago, and it led to facility changes, because what we found was not everybody knew how to put a Foley catheter in. 
not everybody could. You know, a lot of people come and they're new nursing. You practice on a mannequin, but it's a totally different situation when you get to the floor. And so they hadn't had that experience. And we had a lot of situations. We had nurse assistants putting in Foley catheters, and they're not taught, they're not taught sterile procedures. They're not. So you can't blame them. Now, I will tell you, you have some nurse assistants that's better than some licensed people I know. I'll be the first to say when I work long-term care, a lot of the issues on the floor, the nurse assistants found first. And you had good nurse assistants that would show you what you need to do. While they, they weren't allowed to do it, you know, I'll be first to say my best education in long-term care came from my nurse assistants. So it's just that they're not taught that. They don't learn that. But we gave them that responsibility. And they kind of learned. And a lot of them learned through on-the-job training. But not everybody has that experience. And I'll be, I was an NA a long, long time ago. I didn't get that experience, so I couldn't teach anybody. I couldn't do it, but they asked me to do it. But what was happening was that once the order was found for uh, the place full of catheters, the LVNs or the RNs were delegated to, because they could, to the, the um, nurse assistants, and they would put them in. Or there was a urine culture. They would delegate it, you know, and they were doing the best they could. And when we actually found out, how, asking people, how do you get a urine culture? Man. We got various answers, to, to just to be frank. And, you know, a lot of people were, you know, opening up the bag, drain, <laughs> filling it right on up, you know. <laughs> I, you know, and this wasn't all unlicensed first. They were licensed staff, too. You know, it was bad, bad, bad. You know, we asked people, why do you keep breaking the tampon every day still? Well, I thought it was supposed to come off. You know, it's there to ensure that it's a closed system. So we had lots of issues that we had to correct. And the policy did change, of course. Our policy requires two licensed staff to insert a Foley catheter, if yep. you're not familiar with that. I'm two yeah. licensed staff members. Greg told me. Really? Yes. Meaning one for insertion and the other to ensure sterility was maintained. Wow. Two. Mm -hmm. Yes. And so that's a little different. I would encourage everybody to read that, read up on yeah, that when you get a Greg chance. That is different from a lot of facilities. But that was one of the us. changes, yeah. you know. And then it helps to say if you have to go and retrieve um, supplies or things like that. Yeah. And then, you know, also, we don't get a lot of these, but then there's those accusations, you know, where so-and-so touched me the wrong way. Or mm -hmm. I didn't get permission. I was asleep when they put the photo cap in. I'm not sure how you sleep the whole procedure like that. But, um... I didn't get permission, and you know, so you have the other person there look at it as something to protect you as well, based on you know, different accusations that people make. Okay, signs and symptoms you have fever, flame pain, coastal tenderness, um, blood in your urine, urinary burning, and changes in mental status is going to be your first sign and symptom for all infections related to the older population. So, indications um, acute urinary attention obstruction, strict INO. Urinary incontinence in patients with stage three or four pressure ulcers, especially when the incontinence impedes wound healing. Um, neurogenic bladder, comfort, care, and selective surgical procedures. Inappropriate use. We can't use it for convenience of nursing. We can't use it at patient request, and you do have some patients that request it, especially your post-ops that say, hey, you know, I had this total hip. I'm not sure if taking it out is the right thing to do right now when we should be encouraging them to move around. So they will request it. And you have family members that will see their loved ones in pain there, but that is not an appropriate indication for a Foley catheter. One of the most inappropriate indications I've ever seen in my entire career was 
place because of a patient had arthritis in his hand. Now, let me tell you, he this patient was a one-to-one, -one, meaning he had to sit her at the bedside at all times because he was a fall risk. This patient had full control of his bladder. He was not incontinent. He could get up to go to the bathroom. Now, what happened was the one-to-one -one sitter said, hey, you know, because his arthritis in his hands is getting bad now, it's taking him a long time to unfasten his pants. <laughs> Please consider placing a photo catheter to prevent falls. Now, we know photo catheters actually contribute to falls, right? It's a tether. Absolutely. Tether. And so, why would we do that? And you are one-to-one -one sitting at the bedside. There are several options in this case. Could you not assist with unbuttoning pants? Or just some pants without buttons. Absolutely. Without, could you not offer a urinal? The band. <laughs> could you not offer a urinal? There were multiple different approaches to this situation. Rather than placing an order for a full account, that was unacceptable. Unacceptable. And to document it was even worse. Now, if you were thinking that it's one thing, <laughs> the document that is authorized in his hands is called, mm-mm. Yeah. So, but generally we do really good about it. But every once in a while you'll see something out there that makes perfect examples for me teaching. Teaching moment. <laughs> absolutely. Check with the nurse first. <laughs> <laughs> Consider alternatives, external urinary devices, intermittent catheterization. Of course, toilet schedules and frequent rounds is my favorite. Think about the falls. Our fall rate is going back up there. You know, a lot of times they're trying to do for themselves. They're trying to get up because they don't want to feel like a bother. You know, they want to, they want help. But think about put yourself in that situation. I know we get busy, but it only takes a second to stop by and say, hey, how are you doing, Mrs. So-and-so? If you teach your head, you know, there's something I can get for you now. There's something I can do. Can I help you with something? Now, I will tell you this. I'll share a personal story with you. My father passed in December. He was a bilateral amputee. He was pretty much self-sufficient when he put his prosthetic legs on. He was accustomed, he lived by himself, he was accustomed to doing for himself. But when he got sick, he got sick the end of November, he had to go into the hospital. One thing he told me is, he really didn't focus on the people who said, oh, I'm, I'm busy right now, I can't, you know, they're busy, they were short, they had COVID unit, the nurses were short, he didn't focus, but those individuals those two nurse assistants, in this, I think it was an LPN, that took the time to knock on his door and say, hey, Mr. Taylor, there's something I can get for you. Do you need anything? Can I help you? He remembered their names. He looked forward to seeing them. So sometimes it only takes the people that take that extra step, even though they were just as busy as everyone else, and he made it known. You know, they were just as busy as everyone else, but they stopped to even ask. And you know what? He felt bad for asking them to help him. Because he knew they were just as busy, but they stopped. It was, they, they had compassion. They stopped to offer assistance. So take that in mind. He, he didn't focus on the people who, who didn't, but it was those few that said, can I do something? Says, I'm leaving for the shift in about 20 minutes. Can I get something before I leave? It was that that made an impression on him. That even though they were just as busy, they had enough compassion to say, can I help you before I leave for the day? Okay. Um, for insertion... 
Only those that are properly trained, licensed staff can insert, and it takes two people. We already talked about that. You want to verify that there is an order for a Foley catheter. Another thing, if the doctor says um, do straight cath based on a 500 mil bladder scanner result, based on whatever the bladder scanner says, that's what you have to do. You can't say, well, I think the patient said he wanted a Foley catheter. I'm going to go ahead and no. That, you can't practice medicine like that. You need an order for that. And I will tell you this happened. If you do that, based on page preference, the provider's not going to go back and write you an order. That's going to be on you. And then when they go to take that catheter out, it's going to be a problem for that patient. Because he's going to say, so-and-so put it in. Doctor's going to say, I didn't order it. Then that's going to be a situation. It has happened, so be mindful of that. And I know what we're trying to do, make them most comfortable. But if you feel like that, you need to approach the provider for an order. But don't make that decision to do it yourself. Um... Prevention, of course, hand hygiene before and after insertion and before and after manipulation. We want to encourage the, 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 the patients to do so too. They touch their Foley catheters. Yes, they do. We see them. And a lot of them, if you see them around campus now, you see them on their scooter going way above the sidewalk speed limit, and the bag very well may be dragging behind them. So we have to educate them as well. You've seen them. You've seen them on the sidewalk running you down over those scooters. You know, to be honest, some of them have to have to have their um, go to prosthetics and have their speed turned down because they can't they can't confirm. Yes, they can't confirm to the sidewalk speed limit. They need, they'll run you down. So we have to educate them too, because a lot of times they say, "Well, my bag keep busting." Well, I say, "Well, I just saw you on the sidewalk and you were speeding and your scooter was dragging behind you." So it's not the bag; it's actually you. So we just have to just reinforce their education. Um. And in long-term care, a privacy cover, cover is required for dignity issues. We're going to go into Class C. Um, we do know that there are serious infections. Um, see, what do you guys need to know on here? This is for those, the central line insertion bundle. This is for those that are going to be inserting mainly. We do try to avoid the femoral line, um, the femoral um, bank. What you can't do is insert it there and forget about it. Usually that's, that's more of an emergent situation. You can't access anything else. But as soon as that patient is stabilized or you can access another site, that should be removed. Why? Why don't we keep um, central lines in that location? Because of all the other potential infections. The bacteria, absolutely. Um, now the maintenance bundle. The dressing has to be clean, dry, and intact. We know that. They're changed every seven days here. We do have pick line. Our pick nurse is changing for us. Brian and Ryan, for those that are going to be on the acute care, a long-term care set. Brian and Ryan. But that doesn't mean that if you have a PRN dressing change, you leave it until Brian and Ryan come on your scheduled date for the unit. Whose responsibility is it for PRN dressing changes? Nurse. That assigned nurse. Absolutely. So we are blessed to have the lot of facilities done. We have the scheduled changes. It's done by our, our subject matter experts, and they do a really good job of it. They, especially when they put them in, those patients are well-educated. If you're supposed to scrub the hub for 10 seconds, if you do it for five, I don't know what they tell them, but it gets their attention. You do it for five, they will keep your name and say, well, so-and-so did it for five. Brian said 10. They, they'll make notes. And so that's, that's how I know they're doing an amazing job because when I go up to, to do my rounds, the patients will tell me, no, that night nurse only did it for five. He just wiped and kept going. Um, so make sure that we adhere to that. Um, documentation of the central line is still needed. With that said, and this doesn't happen in acute care. This mostly happens in long-term care. 
Say if a patient had to have um, six weeks of antibiotic therapy, they placed the central line. But then they finished with antibiotic therapy, then the patient said, well, I had to get those labs collected weekly. You better let it stay in. No. It was placed for antibiotic therapy. You can't choose to keep it in for blood draws. It's too much of a risk. Um, IV tube and labeled with daytime and initials. Generally, what I tell people, if you're on the floor of long-term care, whenever you're a pick line nurse, unless you're using blood, well, they don't do blood draws over there, unless you're blood or you're doing the, the parental nutrition or something like that where you have to change the lines more often, you should change your lines when they change the dressing just to try to keep it on schedule unless you have to change it in between. If the line is not in use, you have to clamp it. Uh, what else? We do have patients that tamper with their, their, their um, central line, pick line. You do have to know, not everybody have it in their charter flag where their potential IV drug user, you don't know. We don't know. So if, if you're doing your assessment, please look at it and see if the dressing looks like it's been tampered with. Because I can tell you from personal experience, there are people that tamper with it. And you say, wait a minute, uh, it's upside down today. And Brian, they haven't been here. What's going on? So I'm making my mission to go back and look again and say, hey, now that didn't look like that yesterday. What's going on? And you have patients on your unit getting hired to fight. You know, hasn't happened in long-term care, but hasn't, uh, hasn't happened in acute care, but hasn't happened in long-term care. You, you just, it's unbelievable, you know, things happen, and you, you may not always be made aware by reviewing the chart. You just have to do your assessment. Um, surgical site infections, they're just infections like anything else that's associated with a recent surgery, whether it be 30 days or 90 days, depending on the type of surgery and invasive procedure that they have. And these are your signs and symptoms. What's important about this is that you want to make sure, and I want to say pre-op, they do a really good job of patient education. But whenever, at every opportunity, if they come to the floor, there's the opportunity to educate them on surgery site prevention. If they come to long-term care, there's always opportunities to educate them on surgery site prevention, infection prevention. Any questions about that? So education would be the biggest key concept for you here. And there was one situation where we had a veteran, and he was in long-term care. Yes, he was. The nurses were doing a fantastic job. We had some good nurses in long-term care. They were educating every step of the way. Well, there was a communication issue because this veteran was homeless, and he had not told the social worker. He hadn't disclosed that to anyone. He was ashamed. There was shame associated with it. He was homeless. So every time the nurses changed his dressing, he would get up, remove the ace bandages out the trash can, wash them, hang them up in his room to dry. In the nurse's mind, they, were, they said, hey, we've educated him, we've done all we can do. The nurse said, how? We got one for you. As soon as we put this in here, we're gonna pull the trash. Oh, that made him frustrated right there. When they, when they pulled the trash after the dressing change, he was mad. And the nurses were frustrated because they're saying, we're supposed to educate, we're doing our part. And so I had to go talk to him. When I went to talk to him, it was a simple question as why. I said, you know, why are you doing this? We have plenty of supplies. We're not, we're not running out of supplies. You, you, they're trying to help you. In his mind, he was doing everything he possibly could to prevent losing his leg. That's what he was doing. The nurses had the same concept. They're doing anything to prevent any further loss of a limb, and they're taking care of it. They're cleaning it. They're wrapping it like they're supposed to. But in his mind, he said, hey, I'm homeless. I don't know if I'm going to be able to get this stuff when I leave here. So he was saving it 
for when he discharged so he can use it again. So everybody had the same common goal. They were going about it different. And so it's just sometimes it's just a, it's a conversation. Ask why, you know, don't get frustrated because, you know, people are going through things and it may not look like they're going through things, but they're going through and they may be shamed, you know, that, hey, you know, I've lost my house. I've lost this. I don't have anywhere to go. And they may not readily tell you, but you have to be compassionate and come down to love and ask why and explain why we're doing it. And ask, so why are you doing this? Because we're clearly we have the same goal. But what are you doing and why? How can we help you? And so it's just a simple conversation. So sometimes just don't. Don't make a prejudgment in your head about a situation or by looking at someone. Just go to them and ask them why. And if you're 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 compassionate, they'll tell you. They'll tell you why if you ask them. For Legionella, okay, we're gonna run through this. Legionella is just a, a bacteria found naturally in fresh water. A lot of the times it's in shower faucets, um, cooling top, cool, cooling top, that's a big one. Large old plumbing systems, Waco. Um yeah, we've had positive water samples in Waco, one of the reasons why we teach this. We have had positive water samples in acute care too. Positive water samples in long-term care. We just have positive leaving up, but most of our problem is in Waco because a lot of those buildings are old. A lot of times for the acute care side of the house, they've only had a couple. Or long-term care, we have the same issue. If you have a unit that you don't have patients on and nobody's running the water, nobody's flushing the toilet, that bacteria just sits stagnant. And when you do, finally flush or turn, you start using the water, you get a bolus. <laughs> a bolus of Legionella, something unintentional, essentially. So we had, what we implemented was people that their primary job, and if you work here, you've seen them. I don't know if they come to the EV though. Their primary job is to go around flushing toilets. Flushing toilets, cutting water, I know. They got the best job in this facility. <laughs> they do. That is their job. That's what they get paid to do, and they do it well. And when I retire, I'm getting in good with them now because that's what I'm doing. I'm going to come here and I'm going to flush toilet for a living. Put on your headphones and that's go what, back That's business. what they do. They have the best job in this facility. But they're actually, they're an asset because they're preventing, you know, any Legionella buildup in our plumbing system. So they, they actually have it made, and I'm making friends with them right now. Mm-hmm. Um. What Legionnaire's disease causes a type of severe pneumonia. A lot of times when people say, because it is something, it's notifiable, public health, you have to notify public health department. And a lot of times when people find out this is on the unit, they freak out. But this is not transmissible via contact or anything else like that. You actually have to inhale, drink the water. You have to be exposed like that. You can't get it because you're taking care of somebody. They don't require no type of droplet or anything like that or contact. They're standard precautions. Now, the thing with this is, look at the symptoms. Look, look at the symptoms. Do they look familiar? Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> They're pneumonia symptoms. So now when the people come in here, we're testing for COVID. We're testing for <laughs> Legionella. We're testing for flu. Strap pneumo. It's a lot. It's a lot, though. It's, their symptoms aren't the same. Except for loss of smell and taste, there's something about saying, so you really don't know what they got when they come up in here. You really don't know what they have. But we always, this is just a urine antigen. It's just a urine sample. It's very simple. After the urine, they get a urine sample, and they'll test for Legionella. It's very fast, too. Um, those at high risk, of course, those that are immunocompromised, 
you're 50 years or older, you're current or former smokers. Every case that I've ever investigated, they were current or former smokers. So that is true. Every case I've ever investigated. Um, let's see here. So basically, we have a Legionella screening. The people in Waco would get real familiar with this, real intimate with this, these, these Legionella screenings. They used to do them all the time in long-term care but now they don't do it so much. So if you're notified that your unit has a positive Legionella water sample, the RN will complete these Legionella screenings on any symptomatic patient. It's just like our COVID screening. We'll be doing Legionella and COVID screening at the same time. Why is it reportable? What, mean, what makes it be reportable? So I mean, if it's like flu? Because if it's, in the water if it's in the water system, think about in, uh, well, infectious ability, I mean, the potential for yes. Think about it. Uh, what's it? Who was it? Was it Detroit? Who had Detroit. the bad water? Yes. Flint. Flint. Yeah, yeah, yeah. But Detroit had Legion, Legionella from one of the food sources up there. Was mm -hmm. washing the salad. The water. Yes. Yes. Mm -hmm. So uh, that's why it's. And doing a good thing with that water. At a restaurant. Yeah. And all those people and, and they do. And, and it won't, you know, people that are healthy and don't have, just like COVID, you don't have, a, you know, you're not immunocompromised. You probably won't even know you have. But people that are sick with other underlying conditions, this will put them in, in ICU. And a lot of times when we tell people, if you have somebody that has, if they're being treated with, for pneumonia and they're in ICU and they're not getting better and you have not tested for Legionella or Streptococcus, that's probably what you should be doing. Because if you're treating them with antibiotic therapy and they're worsening after a few days, then you need to be testing for things like this. That was, that was a good one. Yes, that was a good one. It is, and that's why it's most definitely reportable. Any questions about what I've told you so far? Let me see if they have it. Now, they put me on gown restrictions around here. So do know, remember what I told you about PPE. It's one thing to put your PPE on in the wrong order. It's a whole other situation when you remove it in the wrong order. What happens? So what's the first thing you need to do before you get any PPE? What's the first thing you need to do? Hand hygiene. That's always going to be the first step. So once you do your hand hygiene, this ain't one size fits all. This is a baby gown. I love those gowns. I sweat. I sweat hard. So those things really help. Now these are not the gowns we normally use. Um, we're on allocation with those. We normally use level two gowns uh, with the full back. They're clothed, they provide better protection. Um, believe it or not, nursing gave us a really hard time when we wanted to go to a higher level gown. They said they were too hot. Uh, oh yeah, this is not our gown. <laughs> they were too hot. Um, so they didn't want to wear them. But when COVID came, we had a shortage of uh, the full cover gown. <laughs> they didn't know it was really fast. So it became that, you know, we were doing actually doing something right. We were actually doing something right. So once you do your hand hygiene, put your gown on. Let's pretend that I didn't have this mask on. What's next? Your gloves. Mask. Okay. My mask.
So if I was putting on a, a respirator, N95, what do I need to do? Every time I do put an N95 respirator, what do I need to do? Fit check. Seal, seal check. There yeah. you go. You need to do a seal check every time. Um, and even if you gain or lose a significant amount of weight during COVID, I've had to I had to go get refit tested several times. There's no shame in it. It's no shame. If you you gain you know you gain weight uh, more than ten pounds, go get fit tested again because it changes. Let me tell you. Um, so after that, your eye protection. Now eye protection, you can wear goggles or face shield. But I will say this: the face shield offers the most protection. Do know that. Depending on what you're doing, just look, do your risk assessment. And then my gloves will be last. Toenail removals. We're going to face you. Now, I've done all I need to do in this room. I'm ready to come out now. Can I do this? Mm -mm. Absolutely not. You should never reach <laughs> up to this area with dirt. Absolutely not. You can't do it. Shouldn't happen. Protect this area. Now, there are multiple ways that you can remove, per CDC guidelines, you can remove your, say if you had on a, anybody had to wear a cloth gown before? Say if you had to wear a cloth gown, a lot of facilities had to. You would remove your gloves first, do hand hygiene, and then if you were, I guess, extended eye use or a mask, then you would pull off your gown. You would reach back and untie with clean hands. So think about it like this. That's how you remove it. You will have to remove it that way. How else are you going to move a cloth gown? You can't pull it. Well, you can, but you'll hurt your neck. It won't break. <laughs> it's intended to be reusable. So what you would do is take the gloves off, just like we're taught. Take the gloves off. Here. Hand hygiene. Say if we had to keep this stuff on, you would just reach back there and untie the gown and peel it off your shoulder. Peel it off your shoulder where you're, you're gonna be inside out just, and then start rolling away from you. You, I mean, that's, you. you should be inside out, that's the goal. This one's not gonna work like that, I'll see, but it's not, it's a different type of gown. But what if you have, it's contaminated on the outside that you're touching? The, the front, you're, you're absolutely right. You make a good point. This entire front, the entire front of you is dirty. Then the side is a little less dirty. Then the closer you get around to the back, unless you've been in there leaning on the, the stuff, <laughs> you, your backside should be clean. You know, it should be cleaner than the front. Or in there with someone else, and they somehow come, their front has somehow come in contact with your back, like y'all are both working together. Well, you protect your back in that situation. <laughs> I'm just joking. I'm just joking. What is going on? I'm just joking. I'm just joking with you. What you should do is, it's still cleaner than the front, so okay. you don't want to just touch the front with your bare hands. But always protect yourself, and that, that even though I joke a lot, you have to protect yourself. Remember what I said about environmental services, so you don't want to be in their room, especially known COVID, known whatever, leaning up on there, you know your back is not protected. Protect yourself. With yeah. that with that gown, I found that it's easier just to break the string. Yeah. I know with Gracia, we did some of that with Ebola when all that was going out, mm -hmm. and um, you know the buddy team helps a lot too. Mm -hmm. If you have them dressed up as well, and they're clean, then they'll get clean again. Yes. It depends if it's how bad it is. Some yeah. weird situation I was, comes I up. I thought you were going to say, take your gloves off, 
clean your hands. Put clean gloves on to take them off, take it off, but then that way it's still clean. It's I mean, cause yeah. your hands, you still when you leave out that room, you're still gonna have to do the same thing after you take those gloves off. Yeah, you're still gonna have to do hand hygiene. Thank you just incorporate another set of gloves. You don't have to. Okay. It's just easier. Your hands, once you remove these initial gloves, you should definitely do hand hygiene. Again. Yes, across the board. You're correct on that. But once you do hand hygiene, you can respect that these, your hands should be clean mm -hmm. and untie. And then, just like this, you're going to peel it off your shoulder. Mm -hmm. You're going to peel it off your shoulder, just like this. And just yeah. your inside that's, out. That's what I did every time. Just do your best. That's yeah. You your inside out. Yeah. That's how you should be, and you should place it in the trash can. Remember this side, the inside has go. been against Bam. you. Bam. It has been against you. Easy day. Mm-hmm. And then after you remove it, you have to do hand hygiene. Now, we are practicing a lot of places. I think the ED, you guys are on extended eyewear. I'm not there anymore. Oh. I'm not sure. Okay. The ED, I think, is on extended eyewear. The same as long-term care. So not only are we wearing a mask, we're wearing eye protection all day long. So if you're in those areas, please don't <laughs> remove your eye protection in the patient care area. Don't do that. It stays on. But other than that, if you're, say, you're working on 14, you're, you're not one of those units that have extended eye protection, you can go ahead and clean, pull these off and clean them like our direction stays. Any questions about that? You have glasses. Hmm? You still have to wear. That's a great question, though. A lot of people think that those don't provide the adequate protection. You know, you have all the size, you have that large gap. But that's a great question. We could ask this a lot. It's a really good question. So and I have the time that, uh, okay. that I slide through, mm -hmm. but they, I was told I couldn't wear those either. Mm, what, your eyes? Some little shields that... that put up, no, you have to have it. Uh, no, I know what you're talking about. The ones that go, the hook to the glasses. Mm -hmm. to, mm -mm. Yeah, you have to have one eye protection. And I would tell you guys, the face shield, for those that wear glasses, the face shield provides the... The more comfort for you guys because you can sometimes the goggles these won't fit over your glasses and they're uncomfortable and what you're doing is you're kind of making matters worse because you're trying to make your glasses fit it's pressed up against your face giving you a headache i would say wear the face shield <laughs> when i was at event health this, i had a nurse that was wearing glasses and the patient sneezed in their face blood and it was all it was perfect though because it, it outlined it but then there was blood specks in where their glasses were so it doesn't protect 100 percent it's yeah it's Who's going to ED? I need patient care units. ED, um, long term care, any acute care units. Okay. Any for anybody else? Any questions? Anything I can help? You had great questions. Yeah. Where are you going to? I have just on that.